far I love farming, um, but I also want to learn new things and work with people. And, and for me, like that combination has worked out good. That's what got me back home. Um, I saw the need for change in agriculture. I mean, I heard about a lot in, in classes in college and kind of opened up my eyes there. And I just saw a big, a big need for change in how we're farming. Um, to me, it just made sense. Why not try to improve the land, um, leave it better than you found it. Welcome to the 267th installment of Ear to the Ground, the Land Stewardship Project's podcast on family farming, regenerative agriculture, regional food systems, and local democracy. I'm Brian DeVore, editor of the Land Stewardship Letter. When Connor McCormick was in fourth grade, he conducted an experiment comparing the growth of two groups of grasses, one of which was receiving applications of miracle Grow fertilizer. That experience hooked the farm kid from southeastern Minnesota on homegrown citizen science. And it was while studying biology and environmental science at St. Olaf College that he saw the opportunity to combine his knack for experimentation with his passion for farming. When he was a sophomore, Connor received an assignment to study cover cropping. He had never heard of cover crops before, and the project opened his eyes to the ecological and agronomic benefits of building the soil biome with diverse root systems. This led the student to do more soil health research. In fact, as part of his examination of the impact tillage systems have on soil biology, Connor was able to get his hands dirty on farms near the St. Olaf campus. One of the innovative crop farmers he worked with at the time was Dave Legvold, who I interviewed for Ear to the Ground episode 166 back in 2015. One thing Connor was able to show through that research was that, when compared to conventional tillage, the no-till system produced soil with higher microbial activity, a key sign of a healthy biome. When Connor graduated from college in 2016, he returned to his family's farm near Caledonia, where he now raises crops and beef cattle with his father. The father and son team farm some 500 acres, and Connor has a 40-head cow-calf herd. He also does custom trucking. All this keeps the 28-year-old busy but he's still finding time to do a little on-farm science where he compares experimental fields to control plots and notes the differences. Connor has continued to experiment with things like conservation tillage systems and seeding cover crops utilizing techniques such as airplane flyovers. His soil health results have been encouraging and back up what he was witnessing as a college student. Turns out armoring the soil and keeping living roots in it year-round creates resilient, productive fields that aren't as reliant on purchase inputs. Just as importantly, Connor is proving to his father that some of those newfangled ideas he brought home from college can pay off financially. For example, by grazing cover crops, he was able to provide his cattle herd two weeks of free feed, plus savings on fertilizer costs. McCormick recently shared some of his experimental experiences with other farmers and ranchers at a Land Stewardship Project Soil Builders Network workshop. Afterwards, I chatted with him about how his early research into ecology inspired him to return to the farm and utilize cutting-edge soil regeneration practices. Connor also talked about some future experiments he has in mind, and the challenge of producing results that will pass the test when it comes to perhaps the toughest audience of them all, his elders. I guess going back, I've always kind of had a research-based mind, I guess you'd say. Um, Fourth grade was my first independent experiment. I looked at uh, two samples of growing grass. One had miracle Grow fertilizer and one didn't, and uh, compared how the grass looks. So ever since then, yeah, I've always, my mind's always worked in that way, comparing two things and, and learning from the differences. 
that you observe. And uh, to me, that just makes sense to do. Always be looking to improve. Um, so in college then, yeah, I wasn't intent on studying soil science at all. I was more interested in veterinary, but I got interested in agroecology class on the cover cropping, and the soil health kind of caught my attention because I could relate to it. And so I started off with a, just a research project on cover crops and saw all the benefits from them, and I'm like, well, why, why isn't everybody doing this? You know, when I went home and talked to my dad about it and, and uh, didn't do anything right away, but the following year I had an opportunity to work with Jim Purvis out, out of Fairball, and he's doing a lot of great things down there with the cover cropping. And so that was my first experiment. I helped with him and Gene Koontz, or from their um, Cannon Watershed partnership. And uh, what we did there was four different methods of interseeding. You know, the three we did in June with a tall boy spreader and carried the cover crop seed with 100 pounds of urea and spread it on about, it was June 26th. The corn was about knee high. And then we compared that to a seeding in August done by helicopter and saw, just looked at, you know, how the cover crop caught and survived after the corn, you know, until the corn was taken off. And so we, we saw great results there. Everything grew pretty good. It looked like, you know, probably had 80, 80% seed catch and survival. There was no yield differences or no yield loss, I should say, where the cover crops were planted. So that was a big, big thing that um, Jim was looking for. As far as between the different trials, everything was pretty comparable from the tall boy to the plain. Um, all of them were pretty good standard cover crops. So what we learned is it's very doable. Um, you don't have to worry about the yield drag. And obviously weather plays a big part, but that year worked out good, and that got me going on it. Uh, what was your major in, in college? Well, I started, at, started as a biology major, switched to environmental science, and then I was two classes away from biology, so I ended up just doubling and did both. So I don't know what you were thinking when you were in college, but I was wondering, were you, was, that, was farming always in the back of your mind, or had you thought about another career while you were getting that major? Yeah, farming, it was always in the back of my mind. Um, I thought about, I guess what got me to St. Olaf was the vet. I was thought wanted to be a vet. They had a pre-vet program, mm-hmm. um, and I played football there as well. And so was, that combination got me there. Farming, yeah, I kind of always knew I'd end up close to the farm thought you know veterinary and then teaching was all the other thing that crossed my mind I talked to a few professors about that and so I knew yeah in the back of my mind though I knew I'd probably end up farming so that's why this stuff really you know caught my attention and I was really interested in it because it's like it's cool stuff and it was kind of on the edge you know that was in 2014-15 and cover crops were pretty new then mm-hmm. um, relatively some guys had been doing them a while so it was kind of like cutting edge in the agricultural world, the way I looked at it, and I wanted to be a part of that. You, you were studying some of, the, like you said, some of the ecology principles and, and some of the basics of ecology there in, in college, and we're seeing some of the, top, probably talking about environmental issues and that kind of thing. If, when you got involved with the cover crop research, that that may be, uh, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I'm just wondering if that helped you see, well, if I went into farming, this is a way I can combine some of those principles of ecology, like building soil health, with, um, with farming, with, with you know, having a viable operation. Yeah, it's been a big uh, motivation for me. Far- I love farming, um, but I also want to learn new things and work with people. And, and for me, like that combination has worked out good. That's what got me back home. Um, I saw the need for change in agriculture. I mean, I heard about a lot in, in classes in college and kind of opened up my eyes there, and I just saw a big, a big need for change in how we're farming. 
Um, to me, it just made sense. Why not try to improve the land, um, leave it better than you found it? That always feels good. And so, yeah, I saw the need and had the opportunity. And, you know, I've always realized if you want a farm and you're not raised on one, you know, it's going to be good luck, basically. Mm-hmm. So it's like I, I hated to turn down that opportunity. I had to farm with my dad and grandpa. And so, yeah, it's like to me it worked out good. I can, you know, have that, you know, a little bit more of the scientific side and, and still farm and keep my brain working. I know Dave Lagvold, I, I remember talking to him years ago when he was involved with some of that research. Yep. What really struck me was he really emphasized this idea of if farmers are going to adapt some of these practices, they need to, they can't just, you know, all these YouTube videos you see about somebody doing it in North Dakota or, you know, in another country or whatever are great, but they need local research that's on their local soils, local climate, local conditions that they're dealing with. And that was why he was involved with with St. Olaf College that are doing that. That must be really key for you as you go from the kind of idea stage into actually trying to make a living from farming is that having that local, uh, some of those local results that you can look at and kind of share. Yeah, that's huge because guys want to see, does it work here on my farm and, and does it, can you still make money doing it, you know, or is it going to screw you all up and, and that's what guys want to see. And uh, St. Olaf definitely made that visible for me that, you know, farmers can still farm and make a living and tweak little things here and there and learn from it, you know, and, and gradually improve. You know, 1% each year is a good goal, and you're heading in the right direction. I St. Olaf definitely taught me, you know, there's a lot of different ways um, to go about projects and using your resources. Um, so I've been working with, you know, the Houston County Soil, the River Soil and Water Conservation District. Bob Scanlon's been great to work with him and Dan Wiermager, and using that resource and the cover crop programs to help make it financially doable and still um, pay the bills, but yet you're learning, and you're not sacrificing everything. You're doing a little out of time. So that was the biggest challenge for my dad was, well, is is the corn going to yield as good? You know, is it going to screw the rotation up? And so he's been seeing that where we've done the cover cropping in the rye, you know, that's our deepest dark green corn, and it's been some of our best yields. And so it takes time, a little bit at a time, and you build confidence every year. Granted, you're going to have setbacks, but that's with anything. Um, you learn how to deal with them as you go. Well, I wonder if that was part of the motivation was it, when you came back to farm, you know, is he, your dad, he's been doing it a long time, your grandpa's been doing it a long time, and you need to kind of show back up. you got these great ideas. This happens a lot. Somebody comes back from school or whatever, and they have these great ideas, but you, you had, I think you realized you had to show them uh, this is where it's going to work out financially, not just also being good for water quality or soil health, that kind of thing. Yeah, for sure. That was their biggest thing is, is uh, didn't have much experience with it. And what they had been doing, you know, what my dad's been doing the past 30, 40 years has worked. He's made a great living um, farming, and my grandpa did too. And so if it works, you know, why change it? But agriculture has changed so much in the past 30, 40, 50 years that if you don't change with it, I think you're going to be left in the dust. And like he said, um, get ready to have an auction. And at the small size farm, you know, it's just my dad and I, we have to find a way to, to compete and have a niche because we don't have 10,000 acres where we can pencil in a five-cent profit on our corn and beans and make, you know, make that work. We, got, we have to find a different way to make it work on 500 acres. And so that's where this stuff, for me, if you can save fertilizer cost and utilize the ground better to make feed for your cattle. You know, if you can cut costs that way and, um, you know, just expand kind of your diversification 
you're going to be way better off mm-hmm. in the long run. What would you say you've been experimenting with cover cropping and you and you've grazed some cover crops and but you've been kind of figuring out different seeding rates and different seeding systems. I know you've used an airplane, you use the high boy system, that kind of thing. Have you done some no-till too? Yeah. You've been and it looks like you yeah, you were talking about a, a planter you got and you kind of modified it to do no-till that kind of thing. What's the biggest surprise you've, uh, where you're like, you know, you always kind of come in with some assumptions on some of this stuff, but did, where you went, oh, I didn't know that was going to happen, or I didn't, I didn't, either pleasant or unpleasant, I guess. Yeah, I've, I've learned a lot the past couple of years of doing with it. Um, one of the biggest surprises is if you get seed touching soil, it will grow at some point, you know, whether or not it survives is another story, but mm-hmm. it's, nature is amazing, uh, seed is designed to grow, to set root, and to make a plant. And if you put the seed out there and give it the opportunity, it's going to do that for you one way or another, giving it the right conditions to make a successful plant. You know, that's sometimes not in our control, but as long as you get the seed out there, um, it's doing what it's intended to, and that's taking care of the, the soil nutrients and keeping them where they're supposed to be. Definitely learned there's a lot of different ways to manage a cover crop. This last spring, for the first time, I planted green, and I learned that you should wait to either spread your fertilizer after or wait a little longer because it was hard plant, um, running the planter through a rye field where you already had tracks with the rye laid down. I got real screwed up on where the planter had been and hadn't been. So I, that really had me scratching my head. I was out out in the ground uh, scratching the dirt looking where I had planted, and <laughs> I got kind of confused there, but I wrote it down. and. And so next year I'll know I'm going to probably spread the area after I plant. So plant into a, a good standing field and then come back and spread the area. So, yeah, there's a lot to learn. And that's where meetings like this and, and talking to local farmers, you know, they all have stories to tell. And that, that's one thing I really appreciate about the ag community is everybody helps each other out. You know, they're not hiding secrets. So this is wintertime when you sit around. Well, you don't sit around, but you, you have a little bit more time to think about ideas. You got any uh, some new ideas for experiments that uh, you might be wanting to look at in the future? Yeah, I've got a few. Um, the 60-inch corn, I would like to do that where I run the cattle because mm-hmm. then you take that corn off in October, November, and you have a bunch of biomass there for the cattle to feed on to get them ready for winter. Um, and from what I've been hearing, the yields aren't much different because um, your, your population staying pretty much the same. So yeah, I mean, can you just explain briefly for people who, what the 60-inch corn, what, just what that is when we talk about that? Yeah, most guys plant 30-inch corn, so every 30 inches you have a row of corn. So the 60-inch corn, you're just blocking or plugging a row, so you skip every other row, so it becomes 60-inch corn. To maintain your population, you just turn your gearing up, and so your corn spacing goes from 6 inches apart in each row to approximately 3 um, to maintain that same population. We do around 34,000. You know, I'd probably drop it to 32,000 if I was going to do the 60-inch. Then, you know, you plant your cover crop in May, June, and that's that's growing right along with the corn. Mm-hmm. And it's it's blocking the weeds, um, keeping the, the soil moist. And then you take the corn off, and you have um, two feet of nice residue there for mm-hmm. for the cattle. So. And then kind of the advantage of that is you're getting more solar, you get more sunlight in there to get that, get more forage. Yep. And it works really nice if you're going to come in and graze that because then you have much more forage to go in there. Yeah, that's where it makes sense to me is where you can graze it. That would for sure, I think that would for sure pencil out mm-hmm. with the cost of speed savings and, and getting put manure back out in the field and, and living roots. So yeah. I'd like to try that. 
I'm um, just a little curious about the fungus pressure we've been having, you know, if that would affect, how that would affect that, and, and if the corn would stand as good in 60-inch rows. Yeah. So. Any other, any other ideas out there you've been working over? <laughs> the next, yeah, the only other one would be, um, you know, planting rye in the fall after your beans or corn, and then coming back in the early spring and no-till and alfalfa in it. Mm -hmm. I've talked to some dairy farmers that are doing that. Because then you already have your ground covered. Um, you come back and no-till alfalfa in 18 to 20 pounds, you know, a little heavier dose. And then you take your eye off in June, July, whether it's for feed or seed. And then you have your alfalfa stand underneath that growing good. That's something I'd like to try. Um, we've always done it with oats in the spring where we work the soil. But if you can save, you know, a couple passes of work in the soil and direct seed your alfalfa into that rye, to me that'd seem like a win-win. Mm -hmm. um, so that'd be project I'd like to try in the next yeah. year or two. Do you have any tips for somebody? I know you're not a, you're not presenting yourself as an expert on on farm <laughs> research or anything, but do you have any do you have any any tips for folks? Yeah, I would say nature's going to take care of itself, so you have to work with it, not against it. But in doing that, learning how to do that, um, need to talk to other guys, look at what other guys are doing, look at guys that are doing different things and making it work and talking to them um, when you're on the road, give them a call. Utilize there's a lot of programs out there. Um, through the through the county and extensions and the FSA, so utilize those programs. They that's what got us into it. You know, when my dad saw that, oh, we can we can have that paid for to do 30 acres of cover crops. Well, then it's like, okay, that ain't so bad. Yeah. So you, that's how you get started. You know, utilize those programs. Then you get comfortable with it, and then you from there you go on your own and be like, this this makes sense financially. You don't we don't need the you know that extra incentive. Now we know. So start small. You know, start an acre, two, ten acres. And work your way up. Don't put all your eggs in one basket because there's no guarantee. Um, weather has, is the biggest factor, I think. But you know, if you can have that extra resource in place to capture those nutrients, capture that moisture, keep it where you want it, to me, that's where the, the dollars start to flow. Yeah, and we heard about some programs that are out there to help with it, help with the seed costs, that kind of thing, the local SWCDs and NRCS. So that could be a really good resource, I think. Yeah, I don't see those programs going away. If anything, I see them picking up. Um, I see more research going to be getting done in this field, and especially with the whole carbon issue and, and the climate change, definitely it's a good step. You know, if we're keeping that carbon in the soil, that's not going to hurt anything. You know, I, to me that can only help. So I think it's a good place for, for research to be done and, and help farmers cut back on fertilizer and herbicide costs. I guess the most important question, have you convinced your, your dad and your grandpa about some of these <laughs> new ideas? Well, my dad asked me to, to go plant his... Uh, beans into rye this fall after he took the beans off. He's like, yeah, time. I had the drill hooked up. I'm like, yeah, that's all you got to do is ask. So he's come, he's been coming around. Um, he, they've been very supportive. They ask a lot of questions, but uh, they never criticize too much. And so that's fun. Yeah, my dad's definitely, I think, becoming a, a stronger believer in it and seeing that, you know, we, we're heading in the right direction and we can, we can still make things work and change things a little bit. We don't have to completely turn the farm upside down, but yeah, it's a lot of fun. For more on ways to build soil health profitably, see the soil health page at landstewardshipproject.org. In 2015, we did an Ear to the Ground podcast on the soil health research St. Olaf College was doing with local crop farmer Dave Legvold. The link to that episode is available on the podcast page for episode number 267. On that page, you'll also find a link to a blog Connor McCormick wrote in 2016 when he was fresh out of college. 
If you have comments or suggestions about this podcast, contact Brian DeVore at bdevore at landstewardshipproject.org or you can call 612-816-9342. By the way, it helps us greatly if you can give Ear to the Ground a rating on iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever podcast platform you utilize. Thanks to Laura Borgendale, a Western Minnesota musician, for Ear to the Ground's theme music. And a special thank you to all of Land Stewardship Project's members who make initiatives such as this podcast possible. If you're not a member, visit landstewardshipproject.org to learn how you can support LSP. Thanks for listening. Thank you.